Welcome to Season 2 of the Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on the things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. This is a special show, Lisette, because it's the first show of 2024, and we've got the acting CEO and executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, Dr. David Johns, on our show today. This is a real win for us today to have Dr. Johns on our show. Well, let's not keep him waiting. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Happy New Year, Lisette. Can you believe it's already 2024? Happy New Year. I cannot. It like flew by so fast. So catch me up. How did you close out last year and ring in the new one? Ooh, well, I just want to say that I spent it quietly because I just can't believe that 2023 ended and that we're in an election year, which is kind of terrifying. But I have to tell you this. Uh, I was watching The Real Housewives of Potomac. Uh, one of the characters was like, or one of them, they're not characters, they're real people, was like, my friend Ngozi connected me to my new friend, blah, 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 who's Nigerian. And then like, there was a whole episode around, you know, all these women who know each other that are Nigerian. And I was like, is that our Ngozi? Is that our Ngozi? So now I have to text her to be like, are you friends with her? Were you just name dropped on an episode of The Real Housewives of Potomac? That would be crazy. That would be crazy. Now we got <laughs> to find out if it's our Ngozi. Yes. I know, right? So anyways, I don't know. She's probably like, Lizette, there's so many of us named Ngozi. But I was like, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's our friend. Maybe she's connected to The Real Housewives and can give me some tea. It Absolutely. could be me reaching. Uh, other than that, just chilling. Getting ready for a ledge session getting ready for all the things. Emails have started cropping up. Yeah. What about you? Tell me, how did you spend the new year? And I know it was heavy, bits of it. Yeah. So as you know, my would-have-been father-in-law passed away on Christmas Day. And so that kind of made the Christmas holiday a little weird because Nicole went down to Roanoke to be with her mom and, and the family and I followed a few days later. So Christmas was a little different. As you know, we're going to Nigeria for Christmas. So in lieu of our traditional opening of presents on Christmas morning, we did a white elephant gift exchange, which was absolutely hysterical. If you don't know white elephant, everybody gets a gift. They're typically gag gifts for like under $20. And then you get a number and you open the gift according to the number. You pick a gift according to the number. And then if you like it, you keep it. If you don't like it, you exchange for the next one. And it just went around. It was just, it was just hysterical. Um, and obviously we're headed to Nigeria tomorrow. So I'm going through all my lists, making sure that we've got everything that we're going to need. I'm checking the kids' bags. I'm, I'm doing all the things because it's the first trip we are taking to Nigeria as a family. And so I want to make sure that it goes just right. Are you excited? I'm super excited. I'm probably as usual, more excited than the kids because the kids are just so cool about everything. 
but I've got like all the beaches planned. I've got family that we're going to stay with. I got friends we're going to visit. Like I've got all the things planned out. So fingers crossed, everything goes well. I'm so excited for you. I wish I could tag along. <laughs> yes. Maybe next time. Maybe next time I'll, I'll send you the itinerary. Sudden, I'm like, hey, everyone. I'm sorry. Is this, like, is this one of your relatives? Oh my God, Lisa, for real, for real, this week has been a motherfucker because yeah. I posted this video on my ticker talker about young jock responding to a hypothetical scenario about whether or not he'd accept $250,000 to perform in front of an all gay male audience. And he said he wouldn't because gay people, gay men in particular made him uncomfortable. And so I just talked in my video about how that was a sign of bias and that folks should be cognizant of that and work against it and how they could work against it and why bias was so harmful, et cetera, et cetera. Again, it was only about Young Jock in as much as he responded to this hypothetical scenario, which gave me an opening to talk about bias. But the people that have been coming into my comments talking about leave that boy alone and he could do what he wants, he could be uncomfortable. And I'm like, okay, y'all, you're missing the point. The point is that if you're uncomfortable being around a group of people for yes. an inarticulable reason, if you can't understand why and it just makes you uncomfortable, more likely than not, you're dealing with bias. And bias is a problem. It's yeah. unconscious and it's something that you can work through. It's something that you can actively work on so that you can get past it. And people are like, you don't have to get past it. But like, yes. if you don't get past bias, that leads to discrimination and harm. And that's why mm -hmm. we're doing what we're doing. That's why you have people like us advocating and talking about it and calling it out and making videos and doing podcasts and doing on talks and running support groups because the bias that exists in our society ignores to the detriment of the most marginalized in our society. And so when you're talking about anti-racism, you white person yeah. are racist. And the ways in which racism works aren't you calling people the N-word whenever you see them, but you don't give them jobs. You don't give them loans. You cross the street when they're coming. You have these negative perceptions of them when you're interacting with them that you don't know where it comes from. It comes from racism. And if you yeah. don't work against it, these biases continue to impact the way you work and interact with other people, again, often to the detriment of the marginalized communities. And it was pissing me off at person after person after person was coming into my comments saying the same dumb, uninformed, ignorant ass shit. I think, you know, thank you for doing that work because that shit's exhausting. And I, I, before we hit record on this, I was telling you why I was being quiet on social media because I don't know. I just, it's been a long few years of having to explain this. Like, I can't tell you how many times I'm told everyone's entitled to their opinion. And I'm like, dude, Bullshit. opinions are like, I don't like apples. I don't like skinny jeans. That's a fucking opinion. Saying that you're uncomfortable by a person because of who they are is a problem. And I think what you and I have tried to be really clear about in doing this podcast is that we too have biases and we too fuck up and we too learn from each other. We learn from other people around us. We can acknowledge it. And I think people have a hard time because we've been told that a bias is like a fundamental flaw. And the reality is, is that we've soaked up society and right. we're not in proximity to as much diversity as we'd like to believe we are. Right. And so we're like growing and learning and we have to be open to growing and learning and to apologizing and not going into that shame spiral of like, I'm a horrible person. Like I, I was horrible in that moment and it doesn't have to be definitive of who I am and I can be better from this moment on. Right. But it's hard. It's hard to have that conversation with people on the internet. And so kudos it to is. you because I, 
I logged on. I was like, tell me about this mess. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, and you know what? The, the reality is that I'm not going to reach everybody. There, there's no way that I'm going to reach everybody, but I'm going to catch one or two. Like in all of those conversations, I caught one or two people who were like, hmm, I'm going to study more on this because you've opened my eyes. Like private message me, pulled the, the, the discussion we were having off of the thread into a private message. It was like, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to do more research. Thank you. So, yeah. you know, it's not everybody. Everybody doesn't have the wherewithal or the capacity to receive the message, but there are some that do. And those are the ones we, we try to reach. Well, thank you for doing that. There was another one too, another video that you posted that got a lot of. Oh my um, God, Lisa. So on December 27th, a transgender woman by the name of Megan Riley Lewis was shot and killed outside of her home in Bel Air, Baltimore, Maryland, by a food delivery guy. And according to the news reports about the incident, the delivery service guy misgendered her. Apparently some sort of disagreement ensued and he shot and killed her. Now they arrested him. You know, I don't know if he's out on bail or what, but a food delivery person killed a transgender person. And you've got people coming into my comments talking about they probably flew off the handle because no, what they said was he probably lost his shit when he misgendered him. So mm. we'll have to wait for the trial. Like, motherfucker, she shouldn't be dead because she got upset for being misgendered. And if you're coming into my comments to say that a person who's dead was the cause of their death, then I can't fuck with you and you need to yeah. go away. And that's the kind of energy that people be coming with. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you must have me confused for somebody who's just going to sit back and take that bullshit. No, motherfucker, I'm not. Not only yeah. am I going to cuss you out. Then I'm going to block you because you can take that shit someplace else. You can take it to the echo chamber of who the fuck else is going to groot you, but I'm not the one. And we're not bringing, letting you bring that toxicity into my space. Hell fucking no. Yeah. It's crazy. Somebody asked me like, what's my word for 2024? And I was like, simplicity. And they were like, I don't understand it. And the reality is, is that like, what you're saying is very clear. Yep. If you're uncomfortable by a group of people, it's bias. There's no gray. There's no gray. And also we don't kill. It doesn't matter. We should not inflict violence, harm, and or kill people. Like, yes. done. Simple. And the ways in which people on social media, I, I was telling Jose, like, social media often can be such an incredible tool. And then you read the responses and it's like reading, like, when you would go into a public restroom and you would read all the bullshit on the bathroom wall. You know? That's yep. what it feels like sometimes where people are just so disrespectful to just and, and lack the human decency needed to say, this is awful. I'm so sorry that she's dead, right? Yeah. Like that no one should be harmed in an exchange of product and service. Basic this is shit. a tragedy. Simple, basic, simple, basic, basic shit. shit. Lisette, we could honestly, we could be mad all day, but we have a whole show to do. We have a guest waiting in the wings. We got today's topics, so let's get to the rest of the show, shall we? All right, all right. Sorry we lost track of time. Let's do it. So a federal judge halted Idaho's upcoming ban on gender-affirming care. The law in question would make it a felony, punishable by up to 10 years in prison for medical professionals to provide certain medications and treatments to minors for the purpose of attempting to alter the appearance or affirm the child's perception of their sex 
if that perception is inconsistent with the child's biological sex. I'm quoting directly from the bill. I am just so grateful that this federal judge took the stance because I'll say it again, gender affirming care saves lives. It's just crazy that this debate continues to move through the courts in the way that it does. What I loved about this judge in this Idaho case is that he was meticulous in creating a record for his decision, which included discussing WPASS specific criteria for giving children certain types of care, the endocrine society's specific criteria for giving certain types of care, and the overwhelming medical evidence that supports that gender affirming care is positive and positively impacts children who suffer from gender dysphoria. The fact that he created this specific record is what I love about this decision because simply it's just bullshit that the other side is coming with. And we need our jurists, we need our judges to be like this judge and say the thing and put it on record such that if it's appealed, these judges now have to contend with the fact that in the record is the judge's factual finding and the legal basis that supports his, his decision based on this factual record. So I'm happy, I'm happy. Hopefully more courts will follow the lead of this judge in this Idaho case. Absolutely. A study found that children are experiencing puberty earlier than ever and are urging doctors to be more aware of this and its implications for children, especially BIPOC youth. This has huge ramifications for trans and non-binary youth who already face multiple challenges accessing quality gender-affirming care. Oh my goodness. It was so crazy. Lisa, because I read this article too, and the thing that got me about it was the conversation they were having about precocious puberty, which yes. is the same treatment that trans and non-binary children are receiving when their parents want to slow down the onset of puberty, specifically to give children the opportunity to not develop in ways that are going to create further harm for them, for their dysphoria, et cetera. And it's interesting to read this article and to read the study that talks about how cisgender children suffer in very much the same ways as trans mm -hmm. and non-binary children as it comes to the early onset of breasts and facial hair development and deepening throats and all of these other things, like children getting puberty at six and seven, girls getting mm -hmm. their periods at six or seven. How do you... As a parent, say, I'm cool with this. I'm cool with my six or seven-year-old daughter developing breasts and being sexualized because they look like women instead of the little girls that they are. It's unconscionable that people are suggesting that this type of care, which impacts all children, regardless of how they identify, equally. And so that there should be different treatments to children who are suffering the same exact condition is unconscionable. I was really happy to see this study saying, hey, doctors, pediatricians, endocrinologists, be aware of the fact that children are experiencing puberty younger and younger. Be prepared to have these conversations with parents. And more importantly, be sensitive to the racial differences that yes. exist with early onset of puberty, such that you are prescribing the right treatments, that you're having those nuanced conversations, recognizing that certain people aren't always going to have the same access to care that everyone else is. And it, it was just, it was, it was heartening to see, and it's an important conversation. And I think it's going to elevate 
the conversations that we're having about gender affirming care because it isn't just a non-binary transgender conversation it's a conversation that affects all youth and it's a reminder that gender affirming care has always been provided to cis youth right and because puberty blockers have been used for precocious puberty for decades right and so when we talk about gender affirming care and trans people the reality is is that the barriers for accessing gender affirming care have been diminished over the last few years and so more trans youth are able to access care but it doesn't mean that gender affirming care is new, right. right? Like every time I go to the OBGYN, I'm receiving gender affirming care for right. my, my right. needs. Right. Um, and so this conversation that the right has a, has a wonderful way of framing it as something that's new, that's dangerous, that's, you know, but the reality is, is that puberty blockers are well tested and gender affirming care for cis kids happens naturally without any barriers or discrimination and trans people deserve the same thing. And Absolutely. so I was really happy to see the study too. And also worried about what it is, like what are, what is it that's triggering, you know, early onset puberty in BIPOC communities, right? So that's part of what the study is getting into, trying to understand what it is. They don't know. They just yeah. have observed the diminishing of age that it starts in the early 1900s. Girls were entering puberty at 16 and a half. It's now down to eight. Yeah. Eight on average. So there's a problem and we need to be aware of it. We parents need to be aware of it. And again, our, our healthcare providers really need to be aware of it. So Lisette, a Seattle hospital is suing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to prevent him from obtaining access to the medical records of transgender patients at their facilities. The Seattle Children's Hospital has sued Paxton over what they consider an invasive and unlawful request from his office to turn over information on Texas residents who received gender-affirming care in the out-of-state hospital. The hospital is seeking to have a November subpoena issued by Paxton, who demanded unredacted access to information on Texas children who've been treated at the hospital, their medication, diagnosis, as well as lab and test results dismissed by the Travis County District Court. Can we just talk about how invasive and problematic it is? Let's. That's like a violation of HIPAA. You're talking about state agencies asking or requiring another state to hand over information on who has received care in their state. Like that's fascism, that's fascism. And it's, it's crazy to me. It is crazy to me that Texas can continue to do these horrific things with zero accountability. With people not, with people just like flippantly saying like, Texas is trash or Texas is crazy. But like they literally just passed a law worse than SB 1070, which will show us your papers in Arizona. And now they're requesting medical information of trans youth who've accessed care in other areas. Like what fascist state are they? Again, and people are not horrified by this. And they should be. Luckily, this hospital is suing Paxton to prevent him from engaging in this bully tactic. Hopefully they'll be successful, but you got to stand up to bullies is really what it comes down to. Absolutely. And then let's talk about this Florida judge who found that Governor Ron DeSantis spread false information on trans health care when passing the laws banning gender affirming care and that there was no rational basis for banning such care. 
A federal judge said DeSantis repeatedly spread false information about doctors mutilating children's genitals in a push for a ban against transgender health care to minors, even though there has been no documented cases of such procedures. Judge Robert Hinkle made the remarks during the final day of trial, saying he would decide as quick as he can in the new year on whether it illegally targets transgender youth. Oh my goodness. Ron DeSantis lied? <laughs> right. Wait, wait, is that what you're telling me? Ron DeSantis is a liar? Categorically. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. Like, and the again, I love when judges go on record and say the thing. They say the thing. They say Trump engaged in insurrection. Yes. They say gender affirming care is best practices. They say yeah. DeSantis is a liar mm -hmm. on record for all to see. Now, you can dispute it to the cows come home, but once there's a judicial record and a finding, there's a judicial record and a finding. And so you can debate it all you want to, but you know, don't talk to me, talk to Judge Hinkle, because he's the one who said you were spreading false information, lying about children's genitals being mutilated so that you could pass a law on some sensational bullshit, you asshole. He's the worst. He really is, he really is, and now, He's been called out on it. But Lisette, we could talk about this all day, but we have to get to our guest who is invariably going to give us some insight with his PhD. Dr. David J. Johns is the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, a civil rights organization committed to the empowerment of Black LGBTQ plus SGL community. Dr. Johns brings a wealth of experience and a profound commitment to justice and equality. Before leading the NBJC, Dr. Johns made history as the first executive director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans, appointed by the great President Barack Obama. His impactful service extended from 2013 to 2017, where he advocated for educational equity and excellence for African American students. Dr. Johns has also served as a senior education policy advisor to the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, working under the leadership of U.S. Senator Tom Harkin and the late U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy. His dedication to education policy is underscored by his impressive academic background, holding a Ph.D. in sociology and education policy from Columbia University. A selfless individual whose tireless advocacy has significantly impacted the lives of Black lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer plus, and same gender loving individuals, including those living with HIV and AIDS, Everyone, please welcome Dr. David Johns to our show. Welcome to the show, David. I have to just say this like quickly, but when I saw you standing like two tables away at the HRC National Dinner, it was like the universe opened up because I've been following you for a few years. And I was like, it is Dr. David Johns. And I literally didn't tell anyone, I didn't even tell my kid that was like sitting next, I like flew towards you. Like a I, saw I was like, I'm coming. I saw it happening. <laughs> I must but, meet but you. <laughs> time out and set. Can we just welcome him to the show and let, let him. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited. Thank okay, you. I'm, I'm so very excited uh, to be here and that that was how we met uh, IRL as the kids would say. Do they still say that? They do still say uh, that. And what's so funny is that that day, Lisette was in her glory and I, I was with Lisette one minute and I turned and Lisette was gone and I turned around and she was talking to this statuesque black man in a cape, just looking like something out of like 
I don't even know, like Phantom of the Opera. And I was just like, who is that? Handsome that what do they call it? That tall drink of water. <laughs> Stephen was like, You didn't take me with you. You didn't introduce <laughs> me. I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I she like, just peeled off. Later. Everything at his time. We circle back later. I just saw that you've been elevated from your current role to become the CEO of the National Black Justice Coalition starting in January. Can you share more about your role as the executive director of NBJC and the future now that you've been elevated for how the organization specifically advocates for the rights and well-being of BIPOC LGBTQ plus individuals, including transgender youth? Yes, uh, one uh, asterisk, we don't do BIPOC work. I can talk later about how that term for me is like nails on a chalkboard. The work that we do is specifically for black people, period, full stop. I often found myself, especially early on, I think I've been in this, with NBJC for five years now, a little over, I found myself like stopping people when they would describe me and say that like, oh, David does like queer work. And I have to remind folks that I have a, a lifetime of, uh, professional, social, cultural contributions that are anchored in Black work. The work that I do is civil rights work anchored in my unapologetic love for Black people and the things that we produce and create and make possible. And NBJC exists singularly as now the nation's oldest um, civil rights organization founded for that explicit purpose, to exist at the intersection between racial equity or what we normally assume happens when we think about civil rights or um, legacy civil rights organizations and progressive LGBTQ orgs, which prior to the last decade were almost always exclusively led by or powered by um, overwhelmingly queer white men and then those who enable them. And so I came to know MBJC while working for as was referenced in the bio, which will still, it's still weird for me to sit through and hear, but working for still my president, Barack Hussein Obama, his fabulous wife, Michelle Levine Robinson Obama, their daughter, Sasha Malia, Grandma Robinson, the, the puppy, Sonny and Bo. In that context, I led an initiative he created that I said when I was appointed, it was a position that was created for me. It was the perfect marriage of uh, my experience and passion as an educator, as someone who has a unique interest in that has been described as a policy wonk or czar, um, someone who under, understands the importance of community and how it is often community that serves as a glue to make advocacy turn into action. And in that capacity, I had a, a presidential advisory commission, people that were appointed by President Obama. And there was a, a, a powerful woman named Sharon Levin Hicks, who was appointed by President Obama to represent MBJC. And she, early on in our relationship, decided uh, my future for me. <laughs> the shorter version is she spent almost four years helping me to appreciate the importance of leveraging my superpowers to lead NBJC. And for four of those years, I had the benefit of her support in allowing me to be the public face of the organization, be responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the organization, support the staff, all while also pursuing a PhD in a whole nother state and thinking about ways to, to hold space for all of that. And at the point at which, you know, we celebrated earlier this month, we're recording this conversation um, in December, on December 8th, NBJC celebrated 20 years. And so over the last year in particular, Sharon and I have been working to 
one, ensure that this organization will exist uh, well after anyone who is associated with it now uh, will have the opportunity to breathe air. Two, to ensure that she has um, the ability to revel in having been successful at predicting my future and uh, ensuring that I am equipped to lead. And we are now joined by a brand new board, which includes people who served in the past, who are excited to come back and help us move through the future, which I am most excited about, if only for the reason that when I think about the, you know, the time since that um, initial meeting with Sharon, um, and now one thing we did together was produce a White House Summit for African-American LGBTQIA plus youth. Hopefully we'll get back to that. But one thing that's changed since then is that there are so many more babies who show up like yours, who are aware of their superpowers, who have tasted freedom, which once you have a little bit of it, you can't untaste, and who are demanding that the adults around them bend and move and conspire for them to not only survive, but to thrive. The fact that the CDC says now more than ever, a public school age students identify as anything other than strictly heterosexual, not only is a, um, a symbolic reflection of the fact that there's been, for me, progress and that students are more comfortable taking up space in that way publicly. Names matter, consistent with Toni Morrison's writings about the word. But watching young people do what your brilliant babies have done and literally taking up space is the thing I know MBJC will continue to benefit from and harness to get us all closer to freedom. Thank you for sharing all of that. This year, we've seen an unprecedented attack on transgender youth in this country. Given your extensive background, including your experience working with the Obama administration, how do you believe government policies and initiatives can be instrumental in advancing the rights of transgender individuals, especially youth? I'm um, processing the question, and there are um, two things that are coming up for me. One is that prior to this year, Beyonce's year, 2023, before this year, again, the, the sort of deadliest year on record for so many in our community, Black trans women, specifically this proliferation of, of bills where political bullies are targeting children in the most pernicious way of only because they created laws that prevent them from even being able to participate in the process that then ends up oppressing them. Prior to this year, what I know is that the absence of political bullies made it such that caring and compassionate adults figured out how to support trans kids and, and gender expansive children and, and children who have always existed in the beautiful diversity that has been here since they we've, we've been people. Even before these terms exist, and in this moment, I'm thinking about Sambu Husome, who wrote a book that's a favorite of mine called The Spirit of Intimacy. And in the book, chapter 13, which is titled Homosexuality to the Gatekeeper, Sambufu says, in my village in West Africa, the words lesbian and gay did not exist, but the word gatekeeper did. And gatekeepers hold the space between the village and our ancestors. And so what I know is that a trapping of white supremacy suggests that we shouldn't remember that or reclaim it and acknowledge that that has always been true. And most of us have found ways to be supportive without a policy being enacted to correct for what happens when people don't operate in ways that are consistent with being compassionate or caring at a minimum. The second thing that's coming up for me is understanding the importance of public policy to something that I've always been aware of in terms of the way that it shapes most of our lives. It is it, it policy like white supremacy is often omnipresent and hyper invisible at the same time. And so what I know is that two things. One, the most perfectly crafted piece of policy won't mean anything without the related social actions to help people appreciate the importance of that policy, right? Policies matter when they are 
enforceable, whether that's through a social contract or um, an administrative procedure that says, if you violate this policy, there are then consequences. Without that, again, the community part of the work, the glue in the middle, it, it's just beautiful words on a piece of paper. And the last thing, which is where I started sort of acknowledging how frustrated I am at the place where we are in this moment in our geopolitical environment is that we, those of us who have the ability to vote, have allowed fascists, white supremacists, xenophobic, hate-fueled bigots to leverage policy-making spaces and apparatus to not only try and dismantle democracy and the practices that support its evolution, but to target our babies. This, for me, is why I am uh, an educator who is a sociologist. I'll end here, or at least pause at this moment, which is thinking about what Bell Hooks wrote um, in a book called Teaching Critical Thinking. Um, what she says as I look for the book is that too often we as adults don't appreciate how fragile democracy is. Um, so what she writes specifically is that there's little public discourse among students, I would argue, as I call you know, my students' babies, and it's about big babies and little babies. Um, there's little public discourse today about the nature of democracy. Nowadays, most simply assume that living in a democratic society is their birthright. They do not believe that they must work to maintain democracy. Skip down. They do not read John Dewey. They do not know his powerful declaration that, quote, democracy has to be born anew in each generation and education is its midwife, it being democracy. So what I know is that our allowing hate-filled bigots to not only occupy spaces like the governor's office in Florida, um, but school boards has allowed us to be pulled into this space where we are now having manufactured wars that are only distractions from their efforts to keep us all further away from freedom. And the fact that too many of us don't celebrate critical thinking, the teaching of this history that they are actively working to ban, not only in Florida, but in so many other states, is what allows white supremacy to exist. And when I think about like the passage of time and sequencing and power, what I know is that white supremacy is a child to the way in which African folks have taken up space and found ways to be. And so so I have moments where I think about how overwhelming it feels to be in a space where white supremacists are empowered, including occupying um, elected um, positions or being appointed to federal benches. What I know is that their enterprise is, while powerful, um, fairly new. So what you're saying is really, really important because as somebody who's been doing advocacy and policy work for my child, what drew me to the work because I'm a first generation, bisexual, mother of a trans kid who has an immigrant spouse who naturalized in 2018. Because I grew up in Arizona, I was very aware of the ways in which bigotry existed in school systems and the ways in which we were directly impacted by policy. And, and obviously if you're not at any of those intersections, you may not see it. And so like for me, I always try to educate predominantly like Families, white families where like they're having a transgender child is like their first entry point to marginalization. Like I have to try to connect the dots, right? Like we know bathrooms are the first entry point into marginalization. You can't pee in public. You can't exist in public spaces, right? And it's not new. We, we saw it across the Southwest, uh, Southern states, right? We, we knew that in the Chicano rights movement, it was about bathroom access and equitable education, right? So like this is the entry point and it's, it's recycled 
bigotry over and over again. So when we're debating trans youth and public access, it's not new, but it, people love to say it's new because it's targeting a new person, right? A new group. What do you find has been the most effective in getting people to see the importance of coalition building, right? We're seeing the major, larger organizations, you know, doing the right thing and bringing in, uh, you know, black executive directors to give that intersectional lens, but like really connecting the dots across, like across all of us, you know, cause I often, I call it the tethering of boats, right? Like you have Chicano movement, like the Chicano rights movement in one boat, you have black liberation in the other, you have like LGBTQIA people, which often when you, people think of that movement, they think of it as this white led movement. But the reality is, is that we're all tethered together through harmful policy. Um, and, and I often say like, if we were to tether our boats, we would be so much stronger because we're all impacted in these very distinct ways and we can build a better tomorrow when we tether. I know that's a lot, but yeah, like what has been effective for you when people come and say like, how do we coalition build? How do we expand the narrative? How do we actually bring the fullness of the story? Because often, times people don't know to connect the dots around bathrooms. You yeah. know, they stay stuck in like, that it's new and it's not, right? A talking point. So a couple of things. Um, one, thank you for inviting me in um, and disclosing publicly in this space your, the part of your identity that includes you being bisexual. I receive that and, and will uh, be respectful of that in perpetuity. Um, and I also think that that's incredibly important because of the way that erasure happens for bi people generally, but especially those who end up in um, opposite sex relationships. So that's one. Um, the second is I want to name, because we are family and familiar, for those who might be hearing it for the first time, same gender loving SGL is a term that I use because of a part of the tension that you're naming, which is this erasure um, that can happen when we're not precise in naming while um, each of us have an important role to play. Um, sometimes the only role for some of us to play is to shut up or move out of the way. So what I, a part of what I struggle with in the analogy, and I think often about a married right element and children's defense fund with the boat and, and like the, um, the, the sifting, uh, Senator Kennedy used to also talk about that too, like a rising tide lifts all ships. What I struggle most with in that regard is that so many of the people that I'm advocating for, specifically at this point in my career, don't have boats. We never had a boat. And in fact, the most disrespectful thing about it is like, we are obligated and expected to build boats for everybody else. So that's one part of it. In terms of the specific question around coalition building and effectiveness, honestly, there's a, I'm struggling with it. I'm struggling with it because what I know as a now 40 year old black man, is all of what we've been talking about is that like this shit has been a problem for longer than I have been alive. The, the resources that I'm accessing from Aunt Tony and Audrey and Uncle Jimmy and Bayard, those things aren't new. And what I know is that, and I find myself saying this, I'm going to come back to the asterisks around I don't know about effective at this point, I'm just being real honest, is I also know that the NAACP has been at this shit for 100 years. And, and, if, and if their way of advocating for 
civil rights or social justice or equity was it, then we wouldn't be having this fucking conversation now. So a part of what comes up for me around affecting this is like, this is the energy that I give. And for some of my elders, it's too much for them. They, they'd much rather talk about my tone or my language. Forget the fact that I got a whole ass PhD. So you know when I'm cursing, it's not because I don't have access to language. It's to make a point, which is to say like, I shouldn't be required to expend energy in this place, parts of it, I can I can understand helping people appreciate language or accessing some of this hidden curriculum. But again, like, not again, related to this, I struggle with the, I need to have an intimate relationship with someone in order to be a human part of this process, right? To your point, it comes up often for parents who um, are invited to appreciate diversity with regard to sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. I find myself having visceral reactions with Black men who become feminists when they birth babies who are assigned female at birth and want to be celebrated for it publicly because now it's sexy to be a girl dad. And what I struggle with is like, yes, that is important. It should, a physical relationship should give you a deeper appreciation. But like, did you not have a relationship with the mother of this child or your mother or like, I don't know a black man who gets to be an adult without being loved on or protected by a black woman, sis, or a trans. So like a part of what I literally struggle with is the expectation that um, those of us who have superpowers are obligated to not only do labor, but be patient with people who have just woken up to this shit. And I ain't got it. So a part of knowing what my strengths are and where there are opportunities is working better in coalition. I celebrate that five years ago when I started in this role, I was a lonely only. There were other black leaders of important organizations. I'll name Earl Folks, who leads the Center for Black Pride. They manage uh, all of the Black Pride federations across this country, but people sitting at federal public policy tables talking about national policy, I was by my damn self. Now, there are six of us. So I tell my colleagues, like, you don't got to like this flavor. Choose. And we each show up in, like, different ways with different perspectives and lived experience, but the, but the fact that our orientation requires all of us to get free, that shit is shared. What I, I, I heard and I've been struggling with this like effective part of the question for all of the reasons that I've named and the thing that has been most effective for me in my work is centering those who are most impacted. So it's not quite coalition building in the way that I heard the question articulated, but when I was in uh, on Capitol Hill, it bothered me that um, one, I was the only black man in the Senate <laughs> as a staffer <laughs> for the vast majority of my career. Um, for a couple of, of years, I was overlapped by a brother named Will Jawando, who was an elected leader in Maryland. But for a long time, it was just me. Um, and for folks who who, who have no appreciation for um, the Senate, which should be the vast majority of people because we don't teach civics, um, the HELP Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, which was chaired by Ted Kennedy until he died, and Tom Harkin, as you mentioned, that committee sees more than half of the bills introduced every single Congress. It touches everything from pension and employment rights to health care, everything related to Obamacare and related discussions, donut holes. I worked on legislation that touched everything from Head Start through college loans and everything in between policies for how we support students with home housing and securities, all of it. And I want everybody to, to filter that through the lens of, I was not only the, the, the only black male and man in the space, there were times where I was the only one who had gone to a public school. As a student, there are times where we are crafting education bills and y'all motherfuckers, not only are you not teachers, you don't even have kids to go to public schools, but you get to write these laws. In, in, in the backdrop of all of this, it was never lost on me that whenever we had conversations about black kids, there was an assumption that they were all cis and and head. And whenever organizations like then Glisten and HRC, which were led by white folks, that's not the case now, 
But whenever they showed up, they came in the room like everybody who was queer, trans, or gender expansive was white or white adjacent. And so two things. One is I was arguing for a change in a elementary secondary education law, what at the time was No Child Left Behind. Title 10, McKinney-Vento is for against students who are experiencing housing insecurity. And I wanted to change a piece of punctuation that would have allowed students who had an unpaid fine or fee at their school to enroll in a new school. Because if you if you're, you know, your parents are worried about domestic violence, they're not worried about returning a book or are paying a, a for, for the water that you needed at lunch that you should be paying for anyway. And the negotiation started with my colleagues who at the time worked for Senator Lamar Alexander and Senator uh, Mike Enzi, who were the chair in reverse order chair and ranking member. And they were like, well, this sounds cute, but if we do this for you today, tomorrow you're gonna ask us to do this for black and brown kids. I'm the only black person in the motherfucker. I walked back to my, my office working for the chairman. And I was like, these people don't even like kids. I can't do this. And the best advice I got was from a woman, a brilliant advocate named Barbara Duffield, who said, let's go again tomorrow and we'll go with students. Let them explain it like that to them. And it didn't go down like that because adults keep, kids keep adults honest. And it's easy for them to try somebody who is approximately their peer, whole nother conversation. Some of that was also hazing. Shout out to David Cleary and Celia and others in a positive way. Um, but ultimately I brought students there and was like, so here, you, you already know what the change is. Here's what I'm advocating for why don't you explain to them why you can't do it they could not do that that's one the second is fast forward to when i'm in the white house and i share this in terms of how i came to nbjc i started these summits that were my way of saying we should not be having conversations about students if they're not present i just i got tired of adults lying on kids and saying that they value their voice but then like render them voiceless by like not inviting them to speak for themselves or like reading a, a letter from them or like the, the things that people do. And so our rule is that like nobody can talk about students in a space that we have access to or otherwise are managing unless students are there. It was just a rule. Secretary of Education on down. At each of these summits, our ability to provide a space where young people felt empowered and powerful and knew that their voices mattered and that there would be people like, often it was my job literally just to tell adults to shut up. Shut up, not your space. I don't, I'm president, school board leader, congressional representative. I understand that this is not how things work where you are. This is a summit that I've programmed for our president. I got the same energy Michelle LeVon Robinson has. We're not going to do this. You can leave. That allowed so much to take place right in the, in the space of like young people realizing that they're not alone, that they're not crazy, that they that there's power in them even talking with and collaborating with one another. Adults who should know better listening to kids because they don't know how to and hearing them advocate for themselves in ways that they would have told me because they did the week before that they weren't capable of. And then my job became, which is I, 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 I'm going to offer up my last solution um, to what I understood as the, the question or, or opportunity around convening, which is it's, it's often my role as an individual, but also leading NBJC to then create a space for people to convene. Right. So we got space for the babies to convene with people who they know, trust them and make sure that they feel sharp. They got a plan. They know ain't nobody going to try them. We then convene another space where the advocates come and we say, here's the plan. Your job is to come and make sure that they are heard, not to take up space. Well, then convene another group where you now adults can say what you heard and you learn how that how that is going to change your practice going forward. And then my job is to work to hold people accountable. This is what you said you were going to do. And, 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 and the genius of it, for me, at least in the way that I've been able to 
to structure it is now folks know it's not just me because the, the babies have asked for it. and 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 you can okay right you can you think you can outweigh me or i'm gonna move on they got long memory they're younger than most they're gonna outlast all of us and, and so i have found that those practices have been effective for advancing agendas that are rooted in equity-based collective solution creation that centers the most marginalized in spaces where they are often most penalized and understanding that a part of the question is like how we get adults and groups of people who are empowered to and should be working on behalf of communities to work better together. I'm still struggling with that one. So you, you said a lot of, of really powerful stuff. Like Lisa and I were like bobbing our heads like damn bobbleheads as you were talking because we just found so much that we were in agreement with. But one of the things that Lisa and I are constantly talking about is the ways in which we see this country moving backwards in terms of preserving and protecting human rights. In your perspective, how have you know advocacy organizations evolved in their approach to addressing the specific needs and concerns of these communities? And what improvements do you think are still needed in order to more adequately address these needs? Yeah, I, um, without asking you to repeat the question, what I'm struggling with is accepting the premise of it, um, which at this point might not be novel, if only for the reason that I don't know that I'm willing to accept the premise that the entrenchment that we're experiencing should outweigh the progress that I know that we've gained heretofore. So let me, let me give a clarification, if I will. The Dobbs decision, yeah. which erased reproductive rights for women at a federal level. Yeah. The 500 plus anti-trans bills that were introduced and the 80 plus which have passed, which have now eroded the rights of transgender youth to go to the doctor, of transgender yeah. youth to play sports, yeah. et cetera. So those yeah. are where I'm talking about the erosion yeah. of rights that heretofore existed. Yes. Uh Three things. One, those things are important, semicolon. Two, we got to place them in context. So Roe was shitty and abysmal and the result of 40 years of organized advocacy on behalf of people that don't believe that uh, women and birthing people should have bodily autonomy. And it was a campaign that has been waged over again 40 years, and they have been successful around that, semicolon. And in the last three years, I can also think about, or not three years, but decade, the fact that we have codified marriage equality which they are attacking, that I, I want to say two um, um, cycles before the Supreme Court issued a statement preventing discrimination with regard to sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression, specific with regard to employment. And there are other bills, I'm going to offer a footnote around one of them, but the fact that we have the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65 that are allowing us to do so much of the advocacy we're doing now to even be able to talk about the Equality Act and its importance. My peers and I can now advocate for the Equality Act to ensure that there are clear and consistent non-discrimination protections provisions because of everything else that has happened, not in spite of it. For me, it's about like framing in ways that are not, that don't become like nihilistic and totalizing, but to appreciate that like, while this shit doesn't feel good, they are actually not winning. And, and they are, they, 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 and they, and they're trying some of this stuff, which is this legislative blitz. Yes, there have been more than 600 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced across the country. The vast majority of them are cut and paste. Many of them get codified with the, the gr grammatical errors and spelling errors included. It is well-funded. I, I want to say it's not that 
sophisticated because when your only objective is to advance fascist regimes that allow white supremacy to be manifested, you ain't got to do a whole lot of other stuff. You don't got to do the coalition building that we're talking about. So like, yes, this year doesn't feel good. And we can't let them feel like they are winning or stealing our joy. If only for the reason that there are so many of these other things that are also happening. So while you got the failed history teacher in Florida in the governor's office, they got a super fucking majority. They run both chambers on both sides. You also have two black queer state rep- state elected leaders, one in the Senate, one in the House, who were up in there giving people to smoke all the time. This same cycle that we're talking about, this onslaught of bills, there are more Black, trans, queer, gender expansive elected leaders at every level. The vast majority of us at the state municipal level, not getting the same kind of shine that Mondaire Jones or um, Richie Torres or LaFonza Butler or others get at the but like we we are always here, almost always queer, and doing this stuff in spite of. So I, I want to I, I will answer the question, but I'm also gonna always I think the space I'm in now is like I just want to push people on the premise because so much of how we then respond to and move through things is based on this premise. And too often we have conversations that are dictated by the terms of white supremacy. I just don't want to do that. My body like literally rejects it. So yes, like shit's bad, but I'm also pointing out that like we still showing up and we out here. MBJC's Good Trouble Network is a manifestation of Byron Rustin. 60 years ago, he organized this march on Washington being brilliant such that now NBJC can identify the first Black openly trans and and non-binary speakers to show up in that space. Let's be clear. They're not the first. I know based on the way that the math works that there's no way that they were the first. They're the first that we know of in part because you have organizations like ours who are saying, who's asked the question? Are we even counting? All of that having been said, so I could adjust the premise, I think a part of your question is like how we move through where we are given all of these attacks. If that's it, then so much of it for me is that we continue to do the things that we've known that have worked. What, what, what MBJC is working to do is in this presidential election cycle, ensure that people have access to fact-based information that cuts through the uh, strategies around disinformation and misinformation. We have a report card connected to things that are already articulated in our policy agenda so that we can help people in that regard. Uh, We have a vote toolkit um, that we piloted uh, this year during the Congressional Black Caucus's annual legislative conference that identifies resources to ensure that not only people can vote, but they can vote safely, and that if they do vote, their vote will be counted. Um, We are collecting data within or organization called Hit Strategies to ensure that we have the right language to talk to people about the issues that matter most to them in the places that they occupy and to test messages around the importance of saying, you know, we got to move past saying you got to vote just because somebody died for your ability to vote. But, you know, um, we're just on a call talking with colleagues around March's uh, National Mentorship Month. What would it mean for us to talk about the importance of voting and taking children with you so that they start to think about that as as, as their birthright, their, their way of defending democracy, not just in a presidential cycle, But every time there is an election, especially the most consequential ones, which are often for me around the DA, the police, the mayor, people who control things locally, all politics are local. That's one part of it. I think there's also, um, I've named some elements of this, but my colleagues and I are working um, in coalition to um, dismantle some of the strategies that Alec, the organization that is behind the proliferation of so many of these white supremacist bills, um, to upend what they're able to do. Um, So similarly, not always responding to um, what they named in Florida the Parents' Bill of Rights, which Florida Quality um, and Nadine Smith 
appropriately named as Don't Say Gay, that's a part of the work, but we also know and have the ability to proliferate bills that would support our access to democracy and the resources that we work for. Um, and so finding ways to, to, to do that and, and, and share that legislation with the network of Good Trouble members that I talked about and others is another way that we upend that. But ultimately, like the way we continue to get closer to freedom is to hold people accountable, especially in uh, uh, positions of influence, whether they are elected or appointed. For us, it's encouraging members of our community to take up space and do what y'all are doing with this podcast to create spaces like what the babies did with the tra the trans march, whatever that looks like for you, doing something to be disruptive, to dismantle, to resist, and to also find joy. A part of this policy work for me, to be explicit, because I think that I've referenced it, but it, it has been building community of folks who don't necessarily sing the same song, but we can read from the same hymnal and pass off notes because the shit is difficult. Like I'm sitting here looking, I got this Renaissance cup on my desk. Like I went to see the Renaissance show with Black queer leaders of national organizations. It was important for us to, to have the kind of uh, liberatory moment that like I think Beyonce and Uncle Johnny wanted us all to have because without it, the work can become overwhelming. It can feel suffocating. And that's what they want us to feel. Um, this is why I keep resisting these premises of like, you know, shit's bad and it ain't gonna never be better and we should just give it up. Not that that's what you're saying, but it's what I feel um, when we don't stop and reframe or at least move away from the white supremacist premises. Let me just give you all of your praise right now, because honestly, as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm like, damn, how often am I engaged in looseness with my words, not recognizing the power of what I say and the way that the, the words that I use create premises that people naturally attach to because they don't necessarily critically think about what's being said or because it's been so rote that they just hear the same things without being able to parse it in a way that allows them to say, hey, I'm going to free myself of what I think I'm hearing and I'm going to reframe it in a way that allows me to show you where the premises steeped in some of that history that isn't necessarily fully true or wholly true. So I appreciate you giving or, or, or just yes. And, or just doesn't feel good. If only for the yes. reason like too often, I think people might experience what's happening now and be like, Oh, those niggas is arguing, right? Like this isn't polite and people preference people have a, we are taught to have a preference for politeness over discourse. Yes. Right? Absolutely. And, and I'm also in a position where I don't give a fuck. Right. So if something doesn't feel good, I'm able to say it and, and I do that in part because most often our babies don't have that luxury, right? Like we are the ones for whom when we do that in a school setting, we get pushed out. We get sent to the principal's office. We get arrested, right? We, we know that often the risk that comes with this kind of exchange is like, you don't get access to the thing that you need to have access to in order to survive. And what I also know is that like Toni Morrison said, like words are things that get in you. It is why I majored in English. And I appreciate that like so much of what inhibits or restricts our ability to do this is how language is constructed. For example, you have people who have um, a fatigue around feeling like they are being forced to learn language rather than being critical about how language has been constructed in the first place. You want to argue with me about using they, them, and theirs when it's actually grammatically correct. You don't give a shit about grammar at any other point in your life, but you want to argue with me about that rather than appreciating that there are three ways to refer to a grown girl and only one way to refer to a grown boy. And, and it's not just that the words are different, but like they are different social, economic, political, and implications to being a miss, M-I-S-S, a miss, M-S-R, M-R-S, especially if you don't have access to state-sanctioned, state yeah, if you don't have access to what the state says you need in order to become any of those things. It just vexes me. Okay, so I'm really excited about all the things you're saying because I'm grumpy as fuck all the time, especially when I'm in advocacy spaces where I'm probably the like only person of color. 
right? Um, but I think that what you're saying is something really, really important because when we talk about Bayard Rustin, when we talk about James Baldwin, when we talk about Polly Murray, right, who was a trans individual who actually gave language and, and thought creatively. This is, I think this is where we, I know that I look at policy from creative perspectives because I have experienced the disparity in some sort of way. And I think what you're drawing to is something that's really, really important in like, how do we help each other? Cause it's recycled. Like I go back to that, right? So like we had a no promo, we had no promo homo in Arizona, right? Forever. Once Doug Ducey signed, you know, removed No Promo Homo, I was part of grassroots organizing appropriate sex education, right? Um, that gives youth access to scientifically based, medically accurate um, sex education in schools, because that often it's uh, public schools are that are that necessary space that give kids access to the information they need to thrive in the world, right? And so when we're talking, or like when we talk about the banning of African-American studies in Florida, we know that in 2010, Mexican-American studies was banned in Arizona, right? And so like, how do we pass information back and forth and say, this is a replication of, and like support each other so that we empower each other to, to feel like we can weather this storm. I know last October, America First Legal spent over half a million dollars in the month of October in radio ads and flyers, which I received one of them. They targeted Spanish speaking radio stations and also black radio stations because they know that our religious community members are still listening to radio, right? And so what you're saying and all of the strap, like how do I, I'm at, I, this question then leads to just what the question I was supposed to ask you because you were like, we're working on this resource. We're working on voting resources. We're working on, message testing, right? Like to educate people on what matters to them and how do we communicate like, you know, on issues that are important. How do parents help? How can parents step into this in a way that may feel easy for them to support these necessary measures, right? Because what you all are doing is creating the groundwork that I know when Stephen and I sit in certain meetings, I'm like, we need this and we need that. And like, you know, how do we help support access to this information that y'all are working on? Yeah, I love the question. And I want to honor it by saying the following, which is that if uh, people don't hear me say anything else, this is in the spirit of uh, Maya Angelou, our ancestor who said, most people will forget what you said or they'll forget what you did but if you do it right they won't forget how they you make them feel so i hope people feel my heart when i say a parent is a child's first and most important educator and it is the most important job that anyone can do i am not a parent i'm an educator um, i'm a gatekeeper and i say that because it is important for people to hear me say i'm not giving you any advice beyond finding ways to love your baby my hope is that everyone who is blessed to have a child come through them and however that manifests, knows that it is impossible for you to know everything, um, that we should disabuse ourselves of that belief and build community that you invite actively into helping you support the young person or young people and making sense of the world that they have been invited into. I think practically, if I can offer two beseechments, it is for parents who have children whose expression, comportment, or constitution, if that 
that challenges you, I beg you to deal with that feeling in therapy in all forms of it, right? Clinical, religious, spiritual, communal, and others. Um, I think often about I'm in a relationship with a brilliant man named Jeff Johnson. We were years ago um, in Brussels facilitating a training for um, elected leaders. And Jeff was talking about this things that happens with parents when your kid says like, oh, I want to be fill in the blank, right? Like when I used to tell, like I spent a decade on Capitol Hill and most people in my family could not explain what I did. But but typically when, when, when a child dreams of doing something that feels unsafe or unfamiliar, the visceral response is usually to say, no, don't do that. Don't ask that question. Don't show up in that way. Um, don't allow yourself to um, exist in ways that might invite harm or unsafety or uncertainty. What I know as a student of African history is that our baby's ability to be called what they want to, move through the world in ways that make them feel seen and loved, create jobs that nobody could envision, that's freedom. That's what we're doing this shit for. And I can understand, again, student of history, why the visceral response around things that engender fear or threat of violence is to want to hold. And I, I, I hope people can hear my heart in naming that often what I hear our baby saying through research and other practices is that that holding becomes a suffocation that manifests often figuratively in the death of dreams and desires and ways of being and taking up space that were that I would argue the ancestors had already conspired to exist before that baby was formed in whatever womb spaces they were. Or it's literal, where the option is, this ain't it for me. Uh, so I'm spending um, a lot of time working through uh, thoughts and emotions not necessarily processing feelings to simply say like, be there for the damn baby who you chose to usher into this world. Literally or figuratively, don't think that you have to figure it all out. Celebrate that it is not the responsibility of that child to live the dreams that you weren't able to dream or manifest. Um, and know that there are individuals like myself, like y'all and organizations like MBJC and GLSEN and Family Equality and the LGBTQ Task Force and HRC, the Marshall P. Johnson Institute and so many others that are working so you know that you cannot, should not try and do it alone. And that, again, to go back to African ways of being, that when we work in community, we all thrive. All right, we are so far over the time we had allotted, but I have one final question for you, uh, Lisa, if you will permit me to have this final question. Okay, given everything that you've seen, everything that you've experienced, everything that you know, both from a visceral, internal body knowledge to an academic, you know, your your PhD, your doctorate, your dissertation, everything that you've picked up from independent knowledge and the experiences you've had with other people. What does the future look like from your perspective for all of us? Yeah, the future is one in which all of us are able to take up space without having to explain, apologize, hide, or shrink incredibly important parts of who we are and how we show up in the world, where our um, conversations and what we convince ourselves are possible for us are constructed from spaces of abundance um, and not deficit or lack. It's one where children are protected in ways that often only white babies know um, and are allowed to 
frolic and laugh and play without it being policed um, or them needing to engage with state-sanctioned actors. And honestly, it's one where I don't know that my job exists. I think often about being on Clubhouse when it was a thing when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and a brilliant man I know, Steve Paget, said, it pisses me off. The smartest Black and brown people I know are consumed with getting the police to stop killing us or otherwise um, intervening in state-sanctioned violence while the most mediocre white people I know are figuring out how to get to the moon. Cue Elon Musk. Cue uh, Elon Musk! Right? And so what I struggle with is knowing that when I was growing up, uh, I would always ask, like, if James Baldwin could have been a self-serving lawyer, would he have done it? If Byron Rustin could have shown up in the world like Elon Musk, if Marsha P. Johnson could have been paid to be a jester like Candace Owens, would she have chosen to do that? And what I know in part because I, you know, I've accepted the calling on my life is that I'm purposed to do this. And I also think about um, my freedom dreams, including um, our babies being able to use their superpowers in ways that are not tethered or structured by white supremacy. So not just the gay ship, but like black and brown and native kids shouldn't be convinced that they have to become doctors because we've all experienced harm from the medical industrial complex or environmentalists because, right, like my freedom dream is one in which our babies are able to dream in ways that are not tainted by white supremacy. I feel like I was, I was uh, at a, at like a wonderful retreat with like a brilliant mind and don't don't get your big head over it but you are literally one of the most real raw truth tell like i've encountered in a very long time and i'm very honored to have met you and to know you and to have you on our show when lisette was like oh my goodness we should have a marshall i was like of course we should have marshall i had no idea what we were getting into this has been so good thank you so much and now it's time for our recurring segment Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups who are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Erin Chowdhury. Chowdhury is running to be the first transgender member of the Ohio legislature against the incumbent state representative who sponsored a drag ban and sponsored bills restricting gender-affirming care and trans participation in school sports. Chowdhury, a Virginia native who has lived in Ohio since 2014 and is the founder of the Northwest Ohio Trans Advocacy, is making her first run for elected office. Her priority issues, in addition to LGBTQ rights, include support for public education and job creation, expanding broadband access, and strengthening unions. I just love the fact that we have trans candidates running for public office across the country. It's so important that trans people, non-binary people, members of the LGBTQ plus community have representation across all facets of elected office. And this is why Erin Chowdhury is our ally of the week. Okay, congratulations to Erin Chowdhury. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Dave Chappelle. Chappelle continued his transphobic rants in another Netflix comedy special, The Dream, where he, by his own admission, punched down on trans people. Chappelle opened the show comparing the disappointment he experienced meeting Jim Carrey, who he met in character pretending to be Andy Kaufman, to his experiences dealing with trans people who are presumably 
pretending as well. Chappelle devoted almost 12 minutes of a special to trans people as the butt of his jokes. At one point, musing over an elaborate story of a trans person whose pronoun was the N-word, who was despondent because their white co-workers never spoke to them. It's so disappointing that a comedian with his platform and impact chooses to target trans people in this way. It's really disappointing. And I'm like, who hurt you, Chappelle? Who hurt your feelings? Because <laughs> this is... This is targeted at this point. And that's why Dave Chappelle is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Dr. David Johns, for joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my co-host, who's rocking in 2024 with me, Lisette Trujillo, for always holding me down. Thanks, Stephen. You know I got you. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And happy new year. Folks, please be sure to subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.